Pleasure to see things burn, to see things blackened and changed. The brass nozzle in his fists, this great python spitting its venomous kerosene on the world. He flicks the igniter, and the house jumps in a fire that burns the evening sky red and yellow and black. He strides in a swarm. Actually, this is Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> War of the Worlds is next. Of fireflies. I can't, no. I can't, I can't. The pigeon-winged books die on the porch and the lawn, rise in sparkling whirls and scatter on a wind turned dark with burning. 451. Fahrenheit 451. It's the temperature of the book paper. It's the temperature of the Fahrenheit 451. The temperature of the book paper catches fire and burns. That. Uh, 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 Oh, sorry. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I thought you'd seen me. That's all right. You seem to pop up out of nowhere. Uh, Surprised to see anyone out this late. I suppose it is. You're the new neighbour, aren't you? And you're the fireman. Oh, well, don't make it sound like that. I'd have known it with my eyes closed. Oh, you mean the smell of kerosene? Mm. Yes, my wife's always complaining. It never really goes. Doesn't it? But you get used to it. I hardly notice it anymore. Just a faint fragrance like perfume. Are you going home from work now? Yes, that's right. Do you mind if I walk back with you? Not at all. My name's Clarice. Clarice McClellan. Guy Montag. Happy to meet you. I'm happy to meet you, too. What are you doing out so late, anyway? How old are you? Stop a moment. What? Smell the strawberries. What strawberries? Fresh strawberries. Or just the faintest breath. <laughs> it's impossible. It's too late in the year. Can't you smell them? Yes, I think I can. It's very odd. <laughs> to come back to your question, I'm 17 and crazy. Oh, what? My uncle says they go together. When people ask your age, he says, say 17 and crazy. And your first question... Oh, I've forgotten what it was. Why I'm out here. 
I like to walk at night. I like to smell things and look at things, and sometimes I walk all night and watch the dawn. Seventeen and crazy. Your uncle's got a point. Do you ever see the dawn? Uh, I, I suppose I must, if I've been working all night. But then I'm so tired, I hardly notice. You know, I'm not afraid of you at all. Well, why should you be? A lot of people are. Afraid of the firemen, I mean. And Well, you do look quite sinister in your <laughs> uniform. <laughs> but you're just a man, after all. Mm -hmm. Do you ever read any of the books you burn? <sighs> That's against the law. Yes, yes, of course. Monday, Milton. Wednesday, Wordsworth. Friday, Forster. Burn them to ashes, then burn the ashes. It's our official slogan. Is it true that once upon a time... Mm hmm Well, that once firemen put out fires instead of starting them? But houses are fireproof. They've always been fireproof. Always? Yes, of course. Strange. I heard once that houses used to burn by accident, and it was the fireman's job to put them out and save the people and the books. Oh. <laughs> Why do you laugh when I haven't been funny? Why don't you think about what I've said? Now, look, have some respect. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be rude. Well, doesn't this badge mean anything to you? 451, yes. Hey, slow down. Oh, it's getting cold. I want to get home. Have you ever watched the jet cars racing on the boulevards on the edge of town? Yes, I've seen them. I think drivers don't know what grass is, or flowers, or trees, because they never see them slowly. Isn't that funny? And sad. You think strange things, don't you? No, I never watch the parlour walls, or racing cars, or go to the fun parks, so I've lots of time for crazy thoughts. Have you ever seen the dew on the grass in the morning? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, yes, I suppose I must have done. <laughs> Here we are, home. What's going on in there? Thank you for letting me walk with you, Mr Montag. All your lights are on. What's happening? Oh, my parents and my uncle just sitting around talking. What? It's like being a pedestrian, just as rare. My uncle was arrested for being a pedestrian. But what do they talk about? Good night. Are you happy? Am I what? Good night. Montag put his hand into the glove hole of his front door and let it know his touch. The door slid open. Happy? Of course I'm happy. He stood looking at the ventilator grill in the hall and suddenly remembered that something lay hidden behind it, something that seemed to peer down at him now. He moved his eyes quickly away and looked at a blank wall. The girl's face was there, really quite beautiful in memory. Astonishing. What a strange meeting on a strange night. He remembered nothing like it save one afternoon a year ago when he had met an old man in a park and they had talked. Millie? Millie? The bedroom was like the cold, marbled vault of a mausoleum after the moon had set. His wife lay stretched out on the bed, uncovered and cold like the body displayed on the lid of a tomb. In her ears, the little seashells, the thimble radios were tamped tight, and an electronic ocean of sound, music and talk and music and talk, broke on the shores of her mind. Millie? I'm going to turn on the light. 
Hello. Wake up. Oh, God. Millie. Millie, please wake up. Emergency. Quickly, get me to the hospital. Yes, I want to report a suicide attempt. Yes, my wife. An overdose. I saw the pill bottle by the bed. It was empty, and I, I just knew. Look, will she be all right? Oh, yeah, fine. Just a routine job. Pump the stomach and change the blood. Oh, yes, I see. And that's why we've got these two gadgets. I see. That thing looks like a snake. No point in cleaning out the stomach if you leave the blood. The blood goes to the brain, and if it's poisoned, bang, hits it like a mallet. Okay, stop it. I was just explaining. Right, finished. That'll be uh, 50. Can you uh, sign here? Thanks. Look, are you sure she'll be all right? Oh, yeah, sure. I do a dozen of these a night. Look, I've got all the poison in these containers here. Can't get to her now. Look, why don't they send a doctor out on these cases? You're not a qualified doctor, and I'd feel much happier For if God's there was a sake, doctor. She doesn't need a doctor. I've told you, it's routine. It's like unblocking a drain. Oh, look, I've got to go. If you need me, you know what to do. Keep her quiet. She's under sedation. She'll wake up hungry and a little sore. So long. I'll see myself out. Millie. Millie. Good morning. Oh, thank God, there you are. You weren't in bed when I woke up. I was worried. What? Sorry, I can't hear you. It's the morning music show. Millie. Will you turn the seashell off? Hey, what's the matter? Did you get out of bed the wrong side this morning? Look, can you take those things out of your ears just for a while? You listen to them all day and night. What? Can we talk? I'll turn them down. How's that? Then I can listen to you and the radio. Now, what were you saying? Millie. How do you feel this morning? Strange. I've got a kind of stomachache, but I'm hungry as hell. Did we have a party last night? Oh, well, I came home. Do you want some toast? I'm going to have another piece. I can't stop eating. Oh, yes, yes, thank you. I'll set the program. Last night, I, I came home. I can't remember. I couldn't have slept very well. Did I do anything stupid at the party? Millie, last night when I came home... What? Making an interesting point here, if you notice, uh, Bradbury used shells in the ears as a way to sort of point out the um, way that society that he built within this fictional work uh, would disconnect. And um, it's an interesting thing to think about in the 1940s, 50s, when we're thinking about writing this and actually writing it, what we are like in 2024 with things over our eyes and things over our ears and demanding or praying or begging for attention from the people we care about. So keep that in mind as the book continues. Wait, wait, there's that record I just love on the radio. Just let me turn it up. 
Oh, it's heavenly. You know, it's the music they use for that commercial. Hi, oh. where are you going? What about your toast? Nelly! Nelly, I'm going to work now. Right. Well, have a nice day. Nelly, before I go, I want Why to say something. That? I could hear you. You took all the pills in your bottle last night. Don't be silly. The bottle was empty. I wouldn't do that. Well, maybe you took two and then you forgot and took two more and it made you dopey, so you kept on. You took them all. Why would I do something like that? I don't know. Look, Guy, won't you be late for work? What are you doing this afternoon? Watching a play in the parlour wall. It's what I always do. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I got my part in the post this morning. You send in packet tops. It's a new thing. They write the script with one part missing. See? That's me, ah. the homemaker. When it comes to my lines, they all look at me out of the walls and say... What do you think, Helen? And I say, I think that's fine. I've got a few more lines later on. Isn't that fun, Guy? It really is fun. What's the play about? I told you. These people, Bob and Ruth and Helen. Oh. Well, goodbye, dear. Goodbye. Enjoy the play. Does it have a happy ending? Oh, yes, of course. They all have happy endings. Hello. Oh, hello. Still crazy? <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Where are you going? To see my psychiatrist. What? <laughs> they make me go. I invent things to say. He tells me I'm an onion. Oh. <laughs> I keep him busy peeling back the layers. Yes, well, I'm inclined to believe you need that psychiatrist. Do you mean that? Ah, uh, no, no, I don't. He wants to know why I go out in the forest and watch the birds. It's not normal, he says. And what do I do with the time I take off from school? Well, I tell him I just sit and think, but I don't tell him what. <laughs> You're 17. So? You know, my wife's 30, and yet you seem so much older at times. It's very strange. You're strange yourself, Mr. Montag. Sometimes I even forget you're a fireman. Can I ask you something? Go ahead. How did you get into it, being a fireman? You're not like the others. Oh, I've seen one or two, and well, you're very different. When I talk, you look at me. Last night, when I mentioned the moon, you looked at it. Well, the others would never do that, and they'd walk off, or they wouldn't even see me. Or they'd threaten me. You put up with me. That's why I think it's so odd that you're a fireman. It doesn't seem right for you, somehow. The mechanical hound slept, but did not sleep, lived, but did not live in its gently vibrating kennel in a dark corner of the firehouse. Lights flickered on its nylon-brushed nostrils. Its eight legs spidered under it on rubber-padded paws. At night, when things got dull, which was every night, the firemen set the ticking combinations of the hound and set loose rats in the firehouse yard and sometimes chickens or stray cats and they would be betting to see which the hound seized first. The animals were turned loose, 
Three seconds later, the game was done. The rat, cat or chicken caught halfway across the yard, gripped in gentling paws while the 10 centimeter steel needle plunged down from the muzzle of the hound to inject massive jolts of morphine or procaine. The pawn was tossed into the incinerator. A new game began. Montag approached the hound. Now, get back. Get back. No. Get back. No. Get back. Having trouble with the hound, uh, Montag. Maybe I'd better use the master key. That uh. you can, Captain Beatty. I don't think it likes me. Well, the hound doesn't like or dislike. It just functions. We set the target and it follows through. Home, kills and cuts off. It's only batteries, microchips and electricity. So why was it growling like that? You know, I think if you hadn't come along. Look, his calculators can be set at any combination. Hmm? Amino acids, glandular secretions, right? Yes, what about it? Well, the chemical balances on all of us here in the firehouse are on the master file upstairs. It'd be easy for someone to, 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 to program the hound with a partial combination. Oh, Montag. Just enough to make it angry, to make it growl, but not kill. Oh, come on, who'd do that? You haven't got any enemies here, have you, Guy? Well, not that I know of. It's just a coincidence. Well, this isn't the first time. Last month it happened twice. Well, we'll fix it. Don't worry. Now, come upstairs. We're playing cards. You look worried, Guy. What's the matter? Have you got a guilty conscience? Why is it I feel I've known you for such a long time? Seems like years. Because I like you, and I don't want anything from you. Sometimes you make me feel old. Oh, thanks. Oh, no, no, I mean, well, like a father. So why haven't you had any daughters like me, then, if you love children so much? Oh, well, I don't know. You don't know? You're joking. Well, my wife never wanted to have children. I'm sorry. I thought, well, I thought you were laughing at me. I'm a fool. No, no, it's a good question. It's been a long time since anyone cared enough to ask. Well, let's talk about something else. Have you ever smelled old leaves? Hmm? Here. Smell. <laughs> right. What does it remind you of? Ah, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. What is it? Cinnamon. Doesn't it? Yes, you're right. Yes, in a way it does. You always look shocked when you find out something new. <laughs> and your laugh sounds much nicer than it did. Oh, does it? Much more relaxed. Why aren't you at school? I've seen you every day for the past week just wandering round. Oh, they don't miss me. They say I'm antisocial. I don't mix. What? You're the most social person I've ever met. Well, it depends what you mean. Well, social to me means talking about, well, the things that we've talked about these past few days. I don't think it's social if you get a bunch of people together and not let them talk. Do you? No, I, I, I suppose not. Well, that's what it's like in school. It's all video teachers now. Not like when I first started. No chance to discuss or ask questions. Well, they pour facts into us like we were bottles to be filled. Well, they're not. We're more like funnels, and it just runs out the other end. Well, by the end of the day, most of us can't do anything but go to the fun pub or race cars around the streets or sit in front of the parlour walls. Oh, you sound very old. 
Sometimes I'm afraid of kids my own age. In the past year, friends of mine have been shot, or they've died in car wrecks, or they've killed themselves. I don't think it's always been like this. No. No, I don't think it has. People don't talk anymore. Oh, that's not true. But they don't say anything. Oh, they name cars or clothes and things like that, and they say how wonderful. They all say the same. And most of them have got seashell radios in their ears, and they're listening to the music all the time. They don't give anything to each other. No. No, I suppose you... For the next few days, as many times as Montag came out of the house, Clarice was there in the world. He saw her shaking a walnut tree. He saw her knitting a blue sweater. Okay, here we are again uh, with some insights, uh, the alienation, the lack of people inter interacting. Uh, look at the education system, it's video education. Um, a very communicative individual feels like they don't fit in because they're antisocial. And we hear again the shells over the ears. Very important to see how the past sees the future and how we can see the future and the direction we're going in. With a series of the past seeing the future, I'm going to be doing on Multiplex and FM here and um, Absolute Reality is to help you lay a basis for what the changes are ahead that we're going to be seeing. We will never see a more rapid change take place. That certainly hasn't ever happened in history and what's taking place before us is an ever-increasing acceleration. So we use tools like this, like the screenplay and or story of fiction from Ray Bradbury to help understand the direction we're going in. The one thing that we have, the one gift that we have is our attention and what we apply it to. And this is one of the subtexts for this movie. There'll be a lot more. Listen to this Listen to this um, radio broadcast, actually, movie radio broadcast. Listen to it with um, 2024 ears, and uh, you might find some very surprising elements. I'll try not to jump in on all of them. Thank you for hanging out. Found late flowers on his porch, a handful of chestnuts, or some autumn leaves pinned neatly to his door. And every day she walked him to the corner. And then Clarice was gone. He waited for her, but there was no sign. Two or three times he almost turned to walk back to give her time to appear, but always the train arrived and took him into work. Oh, come on, Montag. You're playing or dreaming? Oh. Um, one card. No, oh, I was thinking about that fire last week. What happened to the man, Captain Beatty? They took him to the asylum. <laughs> Two cards. But he wasn't insane. Anyone's crazy thinks he can fool the government. Uh, I'll take one card. Look, have you ever tried to imagine how it would feel? Wouldn't have firemen burn our houses and our books? We haven't got any books. No, but if we did have... Have you got books, Montag? Oh, no. 
No, of course not. Are we playing poker or not? Was it always like this? Hmm? Our work? You know, someone told me that once upon a time... Once upon a time? What kind of talk is that, Montag? The firemen didn't start fires, they stopped them. Come on, Montag, don't be ridiculous. Let's play cards. It's your turn, we're going to be... Oh. OK, let's go. I'll activate the hound. Montag, don't forget your helmet. In the past, it had always been like snuffing a candle. The police went in first and removed the victim, so when you arrived, you found an empty house. No people to deal with, only things. You were simply cleaning up. But now, tonight, the woman was spoiling the ritual. No, 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 you won't. You won't. As Montag climbed the stairs, books bombarded his shoulders, his arms, his upturned face. A book alighted almost obediently, like a dove in his hands. In the dim light, a page hung open, and in all that rush and fervour, Montag had only an instant to read a line, but it blazed in his mind. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Montag's hands shook as he thrust the book inside his uniform. Montag, don't just stand there. No! Ah, we'll deal with her later. Gentlemen, have you got the kerosene? Hey, Captain. Pump it out then. Spray it on. Don't hesitate. While the book's up in the stairwell. No, no. Oh, you can't ever hurt my folks. No, come on now. That's it. Now, come on down. I won't hurt you. Drench them all. Please. Please. Don't destroy my you know the law, besides none of these books agree with each other. You've been locked up for years in a Tower of Babel. Oh, Montag, take her out. Come on, come on, this will do no good. No. Now please, please come out with no. me. No, no. The whole house is gone. Get away from me. Captain, she won't come. We don't have time. Force her. Look, will you come? No! I, I, I want to stay here. Oh, no. Captain Beatty, she's got a match. Stoneman, get out! Yes, sir. Montag, come on! There's nothing we can do, Montag! Please, uh, don't! I, I won't leave the books. Play the man, Master Ridley. What? We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out! Montag, for God's sake! Come on! Ah! 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 Ah!
Master Ridley. What's that, Montag? She said, Master Ridley. Just before she died. Lay the map. Um, something, something I can't remember. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. What? You know it? A man named Latimer said it to a man named Nicholas Ridley as they were being burned alive for heresy in Oxford in 1555. I'm full of bits and pieces. Most fire captains have to be. Sometimes I surprise myself. Watch it, Stoneman. Damn it! You've gone right by the corner where we turned for the firehouse. Who is it? Who do you think? Put on the light. It's okay, I don't need it. I can't see you. What are you doing? Nothing. Getting into bed. Hmm. Thought I made your bed for you. You did. Go to sleep, Millie. Sorry I woke you up. The book from the burned house lay hard and solid under Montag's pillow. Far across the room, on a winter island separated by an empty sea, Millie switched over to her seashell radio and started talking. She talked to Montag for what seemed a long time, about this and about that, and it was only empty words, like a child building patterns, talking jargon, making pretty sounds in the air. Montag said nothing and after a long time he fell into a sleep, shallow, dream-filled, and disturbed. You happy? You report a suicide attempt. Blood goes to the brain. Five-one. Four-five-one. Poisoned. Bang. Are you happy? Of course. They all happy. Monday, Milton. Wednesday, Wordsworth. Friday, Forster. Burn them to ashes, then burn the ashes. Have you got books, Monday? No, I won. Four, five. Are you happy? Four, five. Took all the pills in your bottle. I think that's fine. Four, five, one. Four, five, one. Smell of kerosene. It never really goes. Have you got books? You shall just daylight such a candle. Light such a candle. Such a candle. Four, five, four, five, one. Guy, guy, wake up. What's the matter? Millie. Millie, do you have to have this thing in your ear all the time? I like it. Restful. Millie. You know the girl I was telling you about? Guy, give me back the seashell, no, will you? Listen, the girl next door. What girl next door? Please. I want to get back to sleep. You know, her name is Clarice. Oh, yes. I haven't seen her for four days. I was listening to the late night music. Have you seen her? Hmm? Oh, no. No. I meant to talk to you about her. She's, <laughs> she's an odd kid. Oh, I know the one you mean. I meant to tell you I forgot. Well? I think she's gone. Gone? Mm, the whole family moved away, but she's gone for good. What? I think she's dead. We, we we couldn't be talking about the same girl. Yes, that's right. McKellen, 
McClellan. Killed by a car four days ago. I'm not sure, but I heard she was dead. And the family left town. I don't know where they went. But you're not sure of this, are you? Pretty sure. Four days ago. Mm-hmm. You knew she was a friend of mine. Why didn't you tell me sooner? I forgot. Four days. Guy. Guy. Yes, love? Can I have my radio back now? I want to get to sleep. You can't be sick. Well, I am. I think I've got a temperature. Would you bring me some aspirin and some water? Guy, you've got to get up. It's nearly noon. You slept five hours later than usual. Look, Millie, will you turn the parlor walls off? No, don't want to. All those people, they're like a family to me. Will you please turn it off for a sick man? Oh, I'll turn off the sound. Ah. Uh, bring the aspirin, please. One of my favorite programs. Here. Yeah, but what about the water? Okay. You were all right last night, weren't you? No, no, I wasn't. Never been sick before. Well, I'm sick now. I'm not going into there. I want you to call Captain Beatty. Did something happen last night? <sighs> Thanks. Well? Just a fire, that's all. I had a nice evening. Doing what? Watching the parlour walls. Oh, what was on? Oh, you know. Programmes. What programmes? Some of my favourites. You know, the family. The family. The family, the family. Guy, for God's sake, what are you doing? God. <coughs> the smell of kerosene has suddenly overwhelmed me. It's a good job that rug's washable. We burned an old woman last night. With all her books. I'd better take it and put it in the machine. Millie. Millie, aren't you going to ask me about uh, it? I hope that mess comes out. Couldn't you have been Look, more... we burned a thousand books last night and a woman. Well? We burned copies of Dickens and Dante and Swift to Blake. Wasn't he a radical? What? Blake. I heard him. He was a radical. <sighs> Millie. Look, I'm thinking of quitting my job for a while. Want to give up everything? All these years of work because one night some woman in her books. Oh, and... you should have seen I her. I don't care. She's nothing to me. She shouldn't have had books. Millie. She knew the law. If she wanted entertainment, what's wrong with the parlor walls? You weren't there. You didn't see. Look, there must be something in books, something, something we can't imagine to make a woman stay in a burning house. You don't stay for nothing. She was simple-minded. She was as rational as you or I. Christ, and we burnt her. All this before becoming a farmer. Taught, taught, taught. Was I given a choice? My father and my grandfather were farmers. I, I ran after them in my sleep. Don't think I'm going to ring Captain Beatty because I'm not. Millie. You're over two hours late as it is. I shouldn't have let you stay this long. Millie, there was a man behind each one of those books. I'd never thought of that before. It takes a man years to put some of his thoughts down, perhaps a lifetime. Now, I come along with kerosene and an igniter, and it's all over in two minutes. Ah, there's no need to ring Beatty now, anyway. What do you mean? There's a fire service car just driven up. A man in a black uniform's coming up the path. Beatty? Mrs. Montag. Mrs. Montag. Oh, look, you, 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 you'd, you'd better go here. and let him in. 
Dan Millie, tell him I'm sick. Montag made sure the book was well hidden behind his pillow. He climbed slowly back into bed and arranged the covers over his knees and across his chest. Well. Hello, Captain. I just thought I'd drop in and see the sick man. Well, how did you guess? I've seen it all before. You were going to call for the night off? Well, take the night off. Clever, isn't it? Million lights in one match. Million fires. When will you be well? Tomorrow, perhaps. Next day. Well, every fireman hits this sooner or later. You only need to understand what you're doing and know a bit of the history of the profession. Mrs. Montag, turn the parlour walls off. Sorry, Captain Beatty. Can I get you anything? Perhaps a drink? I'll come in and sit down. Wouldn't hurt you to hear some of this. Oh, right. Can I sit on the bed? Uh, yes, yes, of course. Now, when did it start, our noble profession? Well, different people say different times. A man called Benjamin Franklin burned books in 1790, and I've heard him call the first farman. Yes. And uh, a government in Germany in the 1930s also burned books. So we've got a long tradition. But the important thing is that a fire service was really needed when things began to have mass. Mass? Mass appeal, mass consumption. Once books could speak to a few people, they could afford to be different. The world was roomy. But the world got full of eyes and elbows. Books leveled down to a sort of paste-pudding norm. Do you understand? Yeah, yes, I think so. Everything got simplified and shortened. Classics in comic form, novels condensed into digests. Politics became one column, in two sentences, a headline. Guy, are you comfortable like that? Yes, yes, thanks, I'm fine. Everything was whirled around, and all time-wasting thought just fell away. It left more time for sport, for group spirit, for fun. No need to think. You can't be comfortable. Yes, I am. You're all hunched up. Let me straighten your pillow. Millie. But to come back to culture, the bigger your market, the less people you can afford to offend. Especially if you're trying to sell them things at the same time. Millie, please don't leave my pillow alone. Look, I'm, I'm fine. Don't offend minorities. Stay away from controversy. Authors, lock up your titles. Millie, what's this? Millie, what could be? What? Perhaps you would like to um, go out of the room, Mrs. Montag? You don't seem too comfortable. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. You all right now, Montag? Yes. Yes, yes, I'm fine. Please go on. I am, don't worry. You see, the public knows what it wants, Montag. Mm. The captionless comic books, the three-dimensional sex magazines. Y yes, but what about the firemen? Well, what could be more natural? For people to be happy, it's not a matter of all men born free and equal, but all men made the same. Each man in the image of every other. No dissent or disturbance. So a book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it. Who knows who might be the target of the well-read man, the critic, the thinker, the intellectual. And so when houses were made fireproof all over the world, you were right about this, Montag. There was no need for the firemen for the old purpose. Mm -hmm. They were given a new job. Custodians of our peace of mind. Censors. Judges. And executioners. <laughs> Fire. 
is bright, Montag, and fire is clean. There was a girl next door. She's gone now. My wife told me she was killed. She was different. How did she happen? Here and there, that's bound to occur. Clarice McClellan. You know? Well, we've got a record on her family. We've watched them all carefully. You can't get rid of all the uh, oddments and misfits in just a few years. But we're doing pretty well. Didn't want to know how a thing was done, but why? Embarrassing. Ask why too often and it makes you unhappy, very unhappy. Unhappiness spreads. The poor kid's better off dead. So she is dead? Luckily, they don't happen often. We know how to nip them in the bud. If you don't want a man worried politically, don't give him two sides of a question. Oh, better still, don't even give him one. If the government is inefficient, if it's spending billions on arms and cutting human rights, well, better that than the people worry about it. Give them comics and soap operas and quiz shows. Make the quiz shows clever enough, intelligent enough. The people will feel their thinking. They'll have a sense of motion while they're standing still. They'll be happy because they won't be asking any questions themselves. Don't give them any slippery stuff like philosophy or sociology or politics. And that way lies melancholy. Now remember, we're the, uh, the happiness boys. Huh? <laughs> you, me and the others. We stand alone against the small flood of conflicting thought, madness and melancholy, and drear philosophy. I don't think you realize how vital you are to our happy world, Montag. Well, I must be going. Lecture over. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. Oh, one last thing. At least once in his career, every farmer gets an itch. What do the books say? He wonders. <sighs> Oh, to scratch that itch. Well, I've read a few books, and they say nothing. You read them, and you come away lost, unhappy. Uh, suppose, well, suppose a fireman accidentally, um, you know, not really intending anything, takes a book home with him. Oh, a natural error. Curiosity. We don't get over-anxious. We let the fireman keep the book for 24 hours. If he hasn't burned it by then, uh, we come and burn it for him. Ah, I see. Well, Montag, will you take another shift today later on? Shall we see you tonight? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. What? I'm, well, I don't know yet. I'll see how I feel. We'd certainly miss you if you didn't turn up. Now, get well and keep well. Now, I'll say goodbye to your wife on my way up. Sonia's steps are not going into work today to not going tomorrow and not going to the firehouse ever again. You're going to work tonight, aren't you? I don't know. I haven't decided. Right now, I've got an awful feeling I want to smash things and kill things. Go out in the car. Millie, I don't know what I might do. I might even start reading books. Put you in jail. Mildred. Oh. Mildred, for God's sake, listen. Is happiness so important? Beatty says it is, but I'm not happy. I'm not happy. I am, and I'm proud I'm of it. I'm going to do something. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to do something. Oh, I'm tired of listening to you. Guy, Millie. turn it back on. Look, Millie, 
This is your house as well as mine. It's only fair I should tell you something now. I should have told you before, but I was hardly admitting it even to myself. Come with me. There's something you should see. Oh, please, leave me alone. Let me watch my program. Hi. What are you doing? Don't do that. The ventilator, you're breaking. I want you to see some things I've hidden during the past year. I don't know why, but, but I, well, now and again, from, from time to time, <gasps> I've stolen them from the houses that I've burned. I'm sorry. I didn't really think. Looks like we're in this together. Quickly, quickly, we've got to burn them. Take them to the incinerator. Perhaps they'll never know. No, no, Millie. No, stop it. God. We can't burn these. I want to look at them at least once. Then if all that the captain says is true, we can burn them together. You must help me. Oh, we're in such a mess, Millie. You and your, your pills and your endless television, me and my work, we're headed for the cliff, Millie. I don't want to go over. I need you so much now, I can't tell you. If you love me at all, you'll put up with this. Just for a day or two, then it'll be over. That woman the other night, you didn't see her. And Clarice, you never talked to her. I did. Now, men like Beatty are afraid of her. I want to find out why now. Ah. Where do we start? The captain will be back. He'll be back to burn the books and us. Let's see now what this is. Ah, it is computed that 11,000 persons have at several times suffered death rather than submit to break their eggs at the smaller end. What does that mean? It's Many hundred large volumes have been published upon this controversy. See? See? Books. The captain was right. Oh, I suppose we must go back to the beginning if we want to understand it. Um, yes. My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire. I was the third of five sons. He sent me to Emmanuel College in Cambridge. Montag read the long afternoon through while the cold November rain fell from the sky onto the quiet house, and Mildred peered in at the grey walls in the dead parlour. When I contemplate the natural dignity of man, when I feel, for nature has not been kind enough to me to blunt my feelings, for the honour and happiness of its character, I become irritated at the attempt to govern mankind by force and fraud, as if they were all knaves and fools, and can scarcely avoid disgust at those who are thus imposed upon. Through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every band, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney-sweepers cry every blackening church we should be wary, therefore, what persecution we raise against the living labours of public men, how we spill that seasoned life of man preserved and stored up in books, since we see a kind of homicide may thus be committed, sometimes a martyrdom, and if it extend to the whole impression, a kind of massacre, whereof the execution ends not in the slaying of an elemental life, 
but strikes at the ethereal and fifth essence, the breath of reason itself, slays an immortality rather than a life. Friendship is born. As in filling a vessel drop by drop, so in a series of kindnesses, there is a last one which makes the heart run over. Perhaps that's how it was with Clarice. He's dead, Guy. Let's talk about someone alive, for goodness sake. She was the first person in years I've really liked. She looked at me as if I counted. Oh, God, God. I don't understand a lot of what I've read. I need a teacher. But I know that some of this helps me to understand things. Understand my life. What Clarice meant. <gasps> What's that? Stay where you are. What's happened to the door voice? I've switched it off. Let's get back to work. No! I've had enough, that's it. Books aren't people. You read and I look around, there's no one here. Family, the family please. is people. They tell me things. We laugh together. The colors. Yes, yes, I know. If Captain Beatty knew all about those books, would he burn the house? Woody Guy, tell me. Yes, yes, I expect he would. Oh, God, just think. He could destroy the parlour, the family. Oh, perhaps call him and explain. He'll only burn the books. He'll leave everything else. If you own up. No, 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 I'm sorry. But he could destroy everything. Everything. I hate these books. I hate them. Why should I read? What for? What for? What for? You can ask that. <laughs> I saw the worst <laughs> snake in the world the other night. <laughs> Dead, but not dead. You don't just see that snake. It's at the emergency hospital where they filed a report on all the junk the snake sucked out of you. Let me Would you like to go to that house that burned last night, rake through the ashes for the woman's bones? And what about Clarice? Where do we look for her? Huh? And God knows what the government's doing. No one cares. No one bothers to ask. Preparing for war, we know that. But do you know why? I don't. Maybe the books can help us get out of this cave. Stop us making the same damn mistakes. I don't hear the idiot bastards in your parlour talking about it. God, Millie, don't you see? An hour a day, two hours with these books! For God's sake! Yes, that's what I mean, drowning yourself in that ocean of colour and noise. Leave me alone, Guy. Just leave. You see this book? You see this book? It's the one I took from that burnt house. It's the Bible. I don't want to know. It could be the last copy left in this part of the Beatty world. Beatty knows you've got that one at least, doesn't he? You've got to hand it back tonight. I don't think he knows which book I stole. I'm going to give him something else, a substitute. If he knows which one you stole, he'll know we've got a whole library I here. I don't care. I can't burn this. Do you know what you're doing? Lily, let me read you one more thing. You're us. What's more important, me or that stupid book? It's not from the Bible. It's one of the others. It's a poem I saw. A poem? This is no time for silly verses. You've either got to burn those books yourself or call Captain Beatty. Listen. <laughs> Listen. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast... The Listen. Listen. On the French coast... The light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet is the night air, only from the long line of spray. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. 
for the world, which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor health, or pain. And we are here, as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. I'm going out now. There's something I've got to do. Hello. Hello. Is that Faber? Professor Faber? Who's speaking, please? It's Guy Montag, the fireman. I'm afraid I've got nothing to say. Now, don't ring off, Professor Faber. Now, you do remember me, don't you? We met about a year ago in a public park. I often sit in parks, Mr. Montag. I meet a lot of people. A lot of firemen? You talked to me even though I told you what I was. You said you were a retired English professor and you spoke for quite a long time, and then... You said some words, a, a sort of rhymeless poem. I really don't recall all this, Mr. Montag. Uh, now, if that's all you've got to Professor say... Professor Faber, how many copies of the Bible are left in this country? I don't know what you're talking about. Are there any copies left at all? Is this some kind of trap? How many copies of Shakespeare and Plato? None. You know that as well as I do, Mr. Montag. None. Open up, please. Professor Faber. Professor Faber. Who is it? Montag. What do you want? Please, let me in. I haven't done anything. Look, I'm alone, for God's sake. I just want to talk. There's no one else out there hiding? There's only me. And I've got a copy of the Bible. Oh, well, if this is a trick, I suppose there's nothing I can do. Uh, come inside. Look. The Bible? Yeah. So, that is true. Uh, come through here. Uh, this way. Looks like an electronics workshop in there. I didn't... I don't think you need to concern yourself with that, Mr. Montag. You'd better sit down. No parlor walls TV, I see. No, just plaster. That, uh, the book, where did you I get... stole it from a house we were sent to burn. That's very brave. No, no. My wife's only partly alive. A friend of mine's already dead. Someone who might have been a friend was burned less than 24 hours ago. You're the only one who might help me. Uh, may I see the book? Oh, sorry, of course. A uh, King James's Bible. It's been a long time. Oh. I'm not a religious man, but uh, it was written at a time when the English language was fresh and blossoming, like a garden. Oh, this language is so beautiful. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, so beautiful? Oh, there were a lot of fine books once before we let them go. You better have your book back, Mr. Montague. You're looking at a coward. I saw the way things were going a long time ago. I, I said nothing. And now it's too late. Well, suppose you tell me why you came here. No one listens anymore. I just want someone to hear what I have to say. If I talk long enough, perhaps it'll all make sense. And also... Yes? I want you to teach me to understand what I read. How did you get shaken up like this? After all, you are a fireman. What knocked the torch out of your hands? Oh, I don't know. We've got everything we need to be happy, but we're not. No, Something's no, no. missing. I looked around, and the only thing I knew were gone were all the books I'd burned in 10 or 12 years, so I thought the books might help. It's not the books you need. But surely... It's something the books once held. The same thing could be in the parlor of Babylis today. The same detail and awareness could be projected through radio. I don't understand. It must be the books. No, no, no. It's not the books themselves. There's nothing magical in them. The magic is in what they say. How they stitch the patches of the universe together into one garment. Yes, yes, I think I understand that. <laughs> the, the, the friend that's dead, I think she found it in other things. But what is it? It can't be pinned down or labelled, but I think there are three things missing. Quality, a texture, if you like. That book you've got there, it has details and features. That's why books are hated and feared. They show the pores in the face of life. Today, we only want wax moon faces. Handsome, perhaps, beautiful in their way, but dead. So that's the first thing we need. Diversity. Texture of information. Yeah, and the second? Leisure. <sighs> but we've got so much of that, we don't know what to do with it. Time off. Time off, yes. But time to think. <laughs> you can't think if you're playing some mindless game. You can't argue with parlor walls. All you can do is agree. Yes, so where do we go from here? Would the books help? Only if the third thing could be given back to us. The right to carry out actions based on what we've learned. And I hardly think an old man and a fireman turned sour could do much this late in the game. Listen, I can get books. You'll be running a terrible risk. When you've nothing to lose, you run any risk you want. <laughs> there. There, you see, you said an interesting thing without having read it. This afternoon, I thought, if it turned out that books were worthwhile... We might get a press and print some extra copies. We? Yeah, you and I. Oh, no. But listen, listen. Let me tell you my plan. If you insist on telling I must ask you to leave. Aren't you interested? Not in the kind of talk that might get me burned. Now, if the fire service itself could be destroyed, if you were to suggest that we print extra books and then have them hidden in firemen's houses, sow seeds of suspicion among the arsonists, bravo, I say. Well, plant the books? Turn in an alarm and see the firemen's houses burn. Is that what you mean? Oh, Mr. Montague, I was joking. No, but would it be worth trying? I don't know. It's an insidious plan, if I do say so myself. The salamander devours its own tail. I can get a list of firemen's residences. 
with some sort of underground we network. We can't trust people. Sad, but true. You and I and who else would plant the book? Well, aren't there um, professors like yourself, ex-writers, uh, historians? Well, dead or ancient. The older the better, they'll go unnoticed. Come on, you must know dozens. Oh, yes. Not time. Go home. Go to bed. Why waste your last hours racing round the squirrel cage denying you're a squirrel? Then you don't care anymore. I care so much I'm sick. Well, will you help me? Good night, Mr. Fireman. Good night. <sighs> Professor Faber. Yes? Would you like to own this Bible? I give my right arm. The pages, they're so thin and fragile. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Idiot! What are you now, doing? Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast Mr. of the fields. Do not do that! Shall I go on? No! Another 1,100 pages, one don't, by please one? Please, don't do that! Who can stop me? I'm a fireman. I can burn you. You! I could. The book. Don't tear it anymore. Don't you? Please make me feel any more time. What do you want? I want you to teach me. All right. All right. Don't worry. We can tape it all together again. And Montag, have you got any money? A little. Mm, four or five hundred. Why? Well, I I knew a man who did some printing for me uh, uh, ooh, uh, uh, 40 years ago. I think he'd help. We might print a few books. See what happens. Yes. You ought to go into work, Montag, into the firehouse. What? Just for now. You were thinking of putting... Oh, yes, of course, it seemed... Now, go in. We don't want anyone suspicious before we even start. Yes, I suppose you're right. But I'm afraid. Afraid of what? Well, only a week ago, I pumped a kerosene hose and I thought, oh, God, what fun. I don't want to go back to that. I don't think you'll go back now. But the fire captain... You know, he's read enough so that he's got all the answers, or he seems to have. I'm afraid he'll talk me back. Montag, you've got to be I need first. something to say to him. Uh, please, can't you help me? I'm so afraid I'll drown if he gets to me again. I need a life jacket. Isn't there anything? Well, perhaps there is. Not a life jacket. A life line. Now, uh, <clears throat> come, uh, come through here. Now, this, this is my workshop. You, uh, you saw it on the way in. Oh, yes. I ought to have thought of it myself. Oh, dear, I'm getting to be an old fool. What is all this? Proof of my cowardice. When I ought to have been speaking out protesting, I retreated into a world of radio transmission electronics. It used to be my hobby. It became my life, my excuse for a life. I came in here turned my back on the outside world. Ah, while well, the world went on getting worse. That's right. But I became absorbed, quite skillful in what I did. I managed to design and make this. <sighs> Looks like a seashell radio. It's based on that, but it's something more. It listens. What? I can sit comfortably at home, warming my frightened bones, and hear and analyze your dangerous world. It's a two-way radio. Now put it to your ear. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Just like a seashell. You see, this is the main control. Now, uh, uh, go into the other room. Can you hear me? Yes. 
Yes, I can. And I can hear you. I'm the queen bee safe in the hive. And you're the drone that's happening here. It's perfect. We could make more of these. We could put ears in different parts of the city with various men listening and evaluating. Okay, you, you, you can take it out now. Ah, there. What do you think? If the drone dies, I'm safe at home. Maximum comfort, minimum risk. <laughs> do you hate me for this electronic cowardice? Well, we each do what we have to do. Now go to the firehouse. I'll be with you. We'll listen to your fire captain together. God knows he could be one of us. We'll give him a good show. Here. You keep the Bible. Thank you. I'll risk turning in a substitute. And then tomorrow... I'll see that unemployed printer. Yes, yes, that much I can do. Right, good night, Professor Faber. I'll see myself out. No, no, not good night. I'll be with you for the rest of the night. <laughs> a vinegar gnat tickling in your ear. <laughs> but uh, yes, yes. Good night and uh, good luck, Monta. Faber, are you there? Yes. I've just been to the automatic cash dispenser at the bank. I've got the money. Good. Faber. I'm here, Monta. I'm not thinking. What? I'm just doing as I'm told, like I've always done. You said get the money, and I did. I didn't think of it myself. When do I start to work things out on my own? You've already started by saying what you've just said. Yes. You'll have to take me on faith. Ah, I took the others on faith. And look where we are headed. But I don't want to change sides just to be told what to do. There's no reason to change if I do that. You're wise. Ready? Keep talking. Would you like me to read to you? Yes. Yes, please. Was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Joe. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and his true evil. And there were born unto him and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call Neighbor. Yes. I'm almost at the fire station now. My feet. I can't move them. I feel so damn silly my feet won't move. Easy now. If you need help while the captain cries at you, I'll be sitting right here in your eardrum with a big nose. Stay with me, old man. Stay with me. Well, here comes a very strange beast, which in all tongues is called a fool. Hello, Captain Beatty. Welcome back. You've got that book? Yes. Here. I don't want it. Throw it in the waste bin. So the crisis is past, and the sheep returns to the fold. That's right. We're all sheep that have strayed at times. Truth is truth to the end of reckoning. We've cried. They are never alone that are accompanied by noble thoughts. Sweet food of sweetly uttered knowledge, Sir Philip Sidney, right? If you say so. But on the other hand, words are like leaves, and where they most abound, much fruit of sense beneath is rarely found. Alexander Pope, what do you think of that? I don't know. Careful, Montague, careful. Or this, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep, or taste not the Pyrian spring. 
their shallow draughts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. Pope once more, where does that put you? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I'll tell you. You had one wild taste, and for a while it made you a drunkard. Read a few lines, and off you go over the cliff. Ready to blow up the world, destroy authority. I know, I've been through it myself. I'm all right now. Stop blushing. You look worried. I had a dream about an hour ago. I lay down for a nap, and in this dream we got into a furious debate about books. You and I, Montag, you towered with rage, yelling quotations at me. I calmly parried every thrust. You quoted Dr. Johnson, knowledge is more equivalent to force. And I quoted him right back at you. He is no wise man who will quit a certainty for an uncertainty. Stick with a farm and Montag. All the rest is dreary chaos. And so it went on. We were throwing quotations at each other like rocks. You said truth will come to light. Murder will not be hid long. And I laughed back. Oh, God, he speaks only of his horse. And you yelled, this age thinks better of a gilded fool than a threadbare saint in wisdom school. And I whispered gently, the dignity of truth is lost with much protesting. And you shrieked at me, knowledge is power. And I replied with rare serenity, Ignorance is bliss. Come, Montag, come. Hear me, Montag, your pulse is racing. I've got you going, have I? Shall I talk some more? Hold on, he's muddying the water. What traitors books can be. You think they're on your side and they turn on you. At the very end of the dream, I came along in the fire wagon and said, going my way, and you got in, and we drove back to the fire station in silence and at peace. I say too in the next few hours, and you'll have to judge. You'll have to make your decision which way to move. Your decision, Montag. Not mine, not the captain's. Are you thinking about it, Montag? Yes. Yes, I am. Don't forget. You decide. Well, uh, I think it's about time. Ah, now wait, wait. There's no rush, Montag. Uh, cut off the alarm, will you? Stoneman can get the engine ready. We'll join him in a moment. Now, let me check the teletype to see where we're going. Okay. How do you feel, Montag? I'll be all right. You'll be fine. Now, this is a rather special case. So let's go. Here we go to keep the world happy, Montag. Faber. I can't do it. I can't go on. I can't. 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 Oh, God. Something the matter, Montag? It's my house. Lights flicked on and house doors opened all down the street. The carnival was setting up. Montag and Beatty stared, one with disbelief, the other with dry satisfaction at the house before them. This ring in which the torches would be juggled, the fire eaten. So this is it. Didn't I hint enough when I sent the hound out here? 
Millie. What? Mildred, my wife. Where is she? You know the procedure. She was taken away by the police. Don't worry. She's innocent. Nothing will happen to her. Chuck, this is Faber. What's happening? What's happening? That's right. All the windows. Those two. You'll need good cross-ventilation if it's going to burn well. This is happening to me. What a surprise. Did you think you were immune, Montag, from all the consequences of your actions? What is it about fire that's so lovely that draws us to it? If we let it, it would burn our lifetimes out, perpetual motion. But its real beauty is that it destroys responsibility and consequences. A problem gets too burdensome into the furnace with it. Now, Montag, you're a burden. And the fire will lift you off my shoulders. Quick, clean, sure, nothing to rot later. Look at your books now. Pathetic, not worth bothering with. Nothing but black, yellow pages, ravel binding. Okay, stone man! You can stand back now! You've done enough! I want you to do this one all by yourself, Montag. Not with uh, kerosene and a match, but piecework with a flamethrower. Your mess, you clean it up. Ajak, run, run for God's sake. I can't, because of the hound. What's that? Oh, yes, the mechanical hound. It's somewhere in the neighborhood, isn't it? And it doesn't like you, does it, Montag? So don't try anything. You ready? Ready. The flames leapt out to lap at the books and knock them against the wall. The twin beds went up in a great simmering whisper with more heat and passion than Montag would have supposed them to contain. He wanted to change everything, everything that showed that he had lived here in this empty house with this strange woman who had gone and quite forgotten him already. And as before, it was good to burn. He felt himself gush out in the fire, snatch, rend, rip in half with flame, and put away the senseless problem. Fire was best for everything. And then he came into the parlor where the great idiot monsters lay asleep with their white thoughts. He shot a bolt of flame at each of the three blank walls and the vacuum hissed out at him an empty, senseless scream. The fireproof plastic shell was cut wide, and the house began to shudder with flame. When you're quite finished, Montag, you're under arrest. Was it my wife who turned in the alarm? Who else? Give a man a few lines of verse, and he thinks he's lord of all creation. You think he can walk on water with your books? Well, the Captain, world... Captain, please, no more talk. I'm so tired. Can we get it over with? You idiot! You damn fool! It won't be over for a long time yet. Why did you really do it? Archer, this is Faber. What's happening? What's going on? Come on! Don't make it hard! What? What's that? You listening to a seashell, Montag? Montag, are you all right? Montag! Montag! Well, some kind of radio receiver. I saw your head tilt listening. I thought it was a seashell. No, give me that back. Don't be silly. We'll trace the frequency and uh, drop in on your friend. No. Now, don't make me use this. Just give it me back. Oh, no. God. I've burned enough for one night. 
enough for a lifetime, and I don't want to burn you too. Well, that's one way to get an audience at the end of a flamethrower. What's it to be this time, you fumbling snob? Shakespeare? There is no terror, Cassius, in your threats, for I am armed so strong in honesty that they pass me by as an idle wind, which I respect not. How's that? Now, please don't. Go ahead, you, you second-hand literateur. Burn me! Get back. Captain, don't. You put down that flamethrower, guy! Montag, what have you done? Stoneman, keep still. Now turn around. <coughs> Montag turned, and the mechanical hound was there, half across the lawn, moving with such drifting ease that it was like a single solid cloud of black-grey smoke blown at him in silence. It made a last great leap into the air, the spidered legs reaching, the procane needle snapping out its gleaming, angry tooth. And Montag caught it in a bloom of fire, a searing blossom of yellow and blue and orange that burst its metal bones and blew out its electronic interior. He watched it fiddle the air and die. And now... He ran down the alley between the blind black houses, stumbling into the dark. Faber! Faber! Oh, thank God! I never thought you'd make it! Come in! He wanted to die. He just stood there. He didn't try to save himself. He needled me to do what I did. Uh, here, uh, drink this. Uh, if things had been different, I think he might have been one of us. Uh, what are your plans now? To keep running. Well, where? I've no idea. I've not had time to think. Except I want you to have this money. Oh, but... Uh... I might be dead by tomorrow. Use it in any way you think might help. Okay. You'd better head for the river, if you can. Uh, follow along it and then hit the old rail tracks going into the country. Oh, yes, yes, I've heard of them. They're not used anymore, of course, but the rails are still there. They say there's a lot of old writers and teachers on the tracks between here and the coast. Most of them are wanted in the city. <sighs> and they survive? I, I suppose so. The government's never considered them enough of a threat to go out and track them down. How do you know about this? I thought of joining them a few years back. <laughs> I didn't have the courage then. What are your plans? I'm going south to see that retired printer I told you about. Uh, this is uh, his address. Uh, you can contact me there. Ah, right. Mm. Oh, well, uh, pass me that box, please. Uh, it's, uh, thank you, it's a television set, just six inches square. Homemade. I, I wanted something I could blot out with my hand. Montag, M-O-N-T-A-G. Guy Montag, the renegade fireman, is still running. Police helicopters are up and a new mechanical hand has been brought in from another district. Oh, my God. What? Never since its first use in tracking quarry has this incredible invention made a mistake. And tonight, this network is proud to have the opportunity of following the hand by camera helicopter right up to the final moment of the kill. Well, give me some more whiskey, will you? And here it is, landing at the side of the burning. I'd better go. Wait, wait. There's uh, one last thing. What is it? There's not much time. Uh, th that Bible. I, I wanted to survive. I suppose I should keep it. I stand a better chance. 
Where is it? Uh, here. Tear it apart. What? Oh, no, 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 no. You keep some and I'll keep some. That way at least part of it should get through. Oh, but no. Look, what did you tell me? It's not the books themselves that matter. It's what the books contain. You're learning. You're learning very fast. Now, you keep most of it. Um, give me some of the parts you read to me earlier on tonight. Uh, look, uh, here. I, I wrap it in this for uh, when you get to the river. Hmm? Uh, good luck. You too, Professor. I'll be seeing you. Montag ran very fast away from the house, down towards the river. He could feel the hound, like autumn, come cold and dry and swift. A wind that didn't stir grass or jar windows or disturb the fallen leaves as it passed. The hound did not touch the world. It carried its silence with it, so you could feel the silence building up a pressure behind you all across town. Montag felt the pressure rising and ran. Finally, he reached the river. He touched it, just to be sure it was real, waded in and ducked down under. And then, holding the torn and plastic-wrapped Bible to his chest, he walked out into the river until there was no bottom and he was swept away in the dark. Montag travelled in the flow of water for a long time, past farms and woods and fields. He left the river and walked through the warm night, breathing in the odours of the land. He waded through the autumn leaves, another dry river smelling strangely of cinnamon and dust. He stumbled, and beneath the leaves, in the middle of the strangeness, a familiarity, the steel tracks of the railway. And as he walked along the tracks, he was surprised how certain he suddenly was of a single fact he could not prove. Once, long ago, Clarisse had walked here, where he was walking now. Half an hour later, cold and moving carefully on the tracks, he saw the fire. It's all right. You can come out now. Come on. You're welcome here. Who are you? Introductions in a minute. Come up to the fire. Sit down. You can put that bundle down if you want to. We won't steal uh, it. No, no, no thanks. I'll keep hold of it. Please yourself. Would you like some coffee? Uh, thanks. Thank you very much. We've been watching the chase, Mr. Montag. What? We've got a battery television. Over there. We were rather worried. <sighs> so was I. No, I mean, we thought we could tell when you hit the river, but the helicopter swung back into the town. The hunt's still on. What? We're going in the other direction. What? But what? I, I don't... Let's go and have a look. Ah, then. There's something funny going on. The chase for the renegade fireman nears his end. Oh, God. Wait. Police helicopters are converging on Avenue 87 and El Park Road. But, but I don't understand. That miracle of technology, the mechanical hand, has tracked its quarry right across the city. And now... Finally, Guy Montag, the murderer and dissident, who tried to introduce foul and subversive... We don't have to listen to all that. We'll just watch the picture. But I still don't see. Don't you? They lost you at the river, but they can't admit they failed. The show's got to have a snap ending or they'll lose viewers. Now, watch. It's going to end in the next few minutes. But how? 
I mean, I'm here. Watch. See how the camera is coming in, building the scene. Suspense. Long shot. That's the victim, there. At the end of the street. He looks like he's simply out for a stroll. Oh, no. Probably some harmless old man the police have had their eyes on for years. An insomniac, perhaps. Someone who just likes to walk at night and smell the air. They're all on file. Very useful information to have at certain times. Look. It's the hound. Oh. Oh. Well, that's that. Another lesson to anyone who's thinking of stepping out of line. Turn up the sound for a moment. Oh, the hunt is over. The fireman Guy Montag lies slain. His catalogue of crimes against society avenged by this infallible instrument of justice, the mechanical hound. And now, before the action replays, we'll take a short break for some commercials. They didn't show the man's face. Did you notice? Welcome back from the dead, Montag. I think it's time for some introductions. This is John Simmons. How do you do? How do you do? You might have known his name 40 years ago. He was a fine novelist, weren't you, John? <laughs> Not bad. You might even have burned some of my books. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, don't worry, Mr. Montag. Things have changed. You've changed. I'm Bob Granger. I used to be a professor of philosophy, ethics. It's an ancient study now. I've written one or two books. We'll meet the others in the group over the next day or so. They're out at the moment, looking for you. Writers and teachers, mostly. Seven of us in all. Eight now. If you'll join us, Montag. Uh, well, thank you, but I don't belong with you. I bring you trouble. We're used to that. Do you want to join us, Montag? Yes, yes. Yes, I think I do. What have you got to offer? This. Your precious and mysterious package, yes. I wondered about that. What is it? Part of the Bible. The King James Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Oh. What's wrong? Isn't that all right? It's wonderful. Perfect. Do we have those books? Uh, I don't think so. You're going to have to take care of yourself, Montag. Guard your health. You're going to become Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song what, of Solomon. What do you mean? Someday, Montag. Would you like to read Plato's Republic? Well, yes, 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 of course. I am the Republic. Would you like to read William Blake? Mr. Simmons is Blake. How do you do? Uh, uh, hello, but... In our group, we've got novels by Dickens, poems by Keats and Dunn, and Wordsworth and Pope, Swift's essays, plays by Aristophanes and Brecht. We're also Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. <laughs> I can't be. We're book burners, too. What? We read the books and burnt them. Afraid they'd be found. Microfilming was no good. Anything material can be destroyed. They're all here. In our heads. All across the country, on the tracks, in the hills. Warming their hands over fires like this. Drinking coffee out of tin mugs. Literature and history. Philosophy and law. Byron and St. Paul. Milton, Machiavelli. Tom Paine. Mm. Tolstoy and Marx. 
fragments shored against the ruins of civilization. What do you think, Montau? It's oh, amazing. But, but I, could, I could never... Whole books I could never remember. Oh, yes, it's not so difficult. We've trained our memories. We can train yours. At the moment, we've got a horrible job. We're waiting for the end. What do you mean? Things can't go on. You know what it's like in the cities, that, uh, that illness, whatever it is, it's, uh, it's terminal. I'm not sure what's going to end it. Mass nervous breakdown, insurrection, or, or war. And then? If there's anything left. Someday, some year, the books can be written again. It's worth doing. Oh, what should I do now? I think perhaps you should read a little before you go to sleep. Don't you? Turn from him that he may rest, till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud, and bring forth boughs like a plant. Montag. Hmm? Have this coffee. Thanks. When you've read that... Yes? You can burn it. And it's the last book you'll ever have to burn. In Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, dramatized for radio by Gregory Evans, you heard Susan Dowdle, Michael Simkins, Peter Miles, Alan Dudley, Pamela Salem, Spencer Banks, and Jonathan Newth, with Hugh Dixon, Peter Tuddenham, Patience Tomlinson, and Michael Pennington. The director was Brian Miller. The Herald Tribune Forum is broadcast on WNYC as scheduled. For the first in the new series of Lectures to the Laity, WNYC-FM takes you now to the New York Academy of Medicine. From the New York Academy of Medicine, your city station brings you the first in this, the 16th series of Lectures to the Laity. This opening lecture, the Lindsley R. Williams Memorial Lecture on Men, Machines, and the World About, is to be delivered by Dr. Norbert Wiener. To inaugurate this new series of lectures to the laity, we now introduce Dr. Benjamin P. Watson, president of the New York Academy of Medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening we inaugurate the 1950-51 series of lectures to the laity. It was a happy thought on the part of the officers of the New York Academy of Medicine 16 years ago which led them to institute those lectures. Medicine had then long passed the stage when it was practiced empirically. The foundations of the scientific approach had been laid. The basic medical sciences had been well established, 
and medicine was drawing more and more upon pure science for the elucidation of its problems. Science in many of its branches was being taught in our schools and our colleges, and so the public at large was becoming capable of understanding the nature and implications of scientific progress. It is with the idea of showing how scientific advance is furthering our knowledge of health and disease that these laity lectures are given. With each passing year, new knowledge has come and the Academy has tried to pass it on to you by inviting to address you scientists and clinicians who have the ability to explain in simple language the nature and results of their own researches and those of others in their field. In this year's series, you will have discussed in succeeding sessions what might be called this evening the mechanics of bodily function, the subtle action of the endocrine organs, the intriguing subjects of psychology and psychiatry with their bearing on mental and bodily health, the action of the antibiotics, and the possibilities of still greater discoveries in this field. It is with such broad aspects of medical thought and progress that these lectures deal. In the most recent number of the New York of New York Medicine, which is the official publication of the Medical Society of the County of New York, there is an editorial on the scope and content of the present series of lectures to the laity, in which it is asked, what is a layman? And answering the question by stating, with much truth, that many of our doctors constitute what might be called the professional laity and that they could profit greatly by attending those lectures. I place myself in this category. For even the most hard-working and studious of medical men cannot keep abreast with all that is going on in science as applied to medicine. I take this editorial as a great compliment to the members of the Special Committee of the Academy, with Dr. Howard B. Kies as chairman and Dr. Iago Galston as secretary, who are responsible for choosing subjects and speakers. The Academy is also deeply grateful for the interest taken in those lectures by the uh, Board of Education, and particularly, particularly the interest taken by Dr. I.H. Goldberger in acquainting all the uh, staffs in that large department with these laity lectures. <laughs> Dr. Kyes, Dr. Galston have been uh, instrumental in uh, getting together this series of lectures, and I'm going to call on Dr. Kyes, Dr. Howard B. Kyes, to address you for a moment. Dr. Kyes. <laughs> It's my privilege to introduce the chairman of the evening. And before I do that, I wish to do what is definitely done each year. You will notice that these are called the Lindsay R. Williams Memorial Lectures. And I wish to comment on that subject. For some years now, 
it has been our custom to, to dedicate the first in the series of our annual laity lectures to the memory of Dr. William Lindsay R. Williams, the first director of the New York Academy of Medicine. It is more than fitting that we should do so, for he was a precious and a rare being, one who combined in his person the best qualities of the medical statesman and of the conscientious citizen. Devoted as he was to the advancement of medical education, Dr. Williams was not one a whit less eager that the public should share in the knowledge of all that pertains to the prevention of disease and the promotion of physical and mental well-being. When he became the director of the academy, and even while he was busy with the thousand and one details involved in the planning and construction of this building and in the reorganization of the academy's administrative and other functions, he found time and energy to plan and to agitate for the extension of the academy's service to the lay public. I say agitate advisedly, for not everyone shared his conviction on that score, and some were strongly opposed. But in time his judgment prevailed, and years have shown how well he planned and how clear was his vision. Lindsay Williams fostered the laity lectures with enthusiasm, and I believe he would have warmly approved of this year's series. We wish again to welcome Mrs. Williams to this lecture tonight. Now it is my privilege to introduce the chairman of the evening, Dr. Theodore Shedlovsky, a scientist, expert in physical chemistry, an associate member of the Rockefeller Institute. He is both a good and an intimate friend of the speaker of this evening, Dr. Wiener, and hence preeminently fitted to serve as chairman. It gives me pleasure to introduce Dr. Shedlovsky. Thank you, guys. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce the speaker to you, because that is so easy. I doubt that there is a person in the audience who does not know of Dr. Wiener as the author of cybernetics, as an eminent mathematician. And so perhaps it would be more appropriate to introduce the audience to Dr. Wiener. I think I can assure our speaker that many in the audience know that Dr. Wiener has made very important contributions in the field of mathematics, in Fourier analysis, Fourier transform, in logic, in various branches of mathematics. Not so many in the audience, I believe, are aware of the fact that in a certain sense, Professor Wiener does not have exactly a formal degree in mathematics. His doctorate was really in philosophy. He is a product 
of the academic scene. He was, I believe, born on campuses. He got his bachelor's degree at Tufts, his doctorate at Harvard. He studied in Cambridge, England, Göttingen, Columbia, Cornell. These are not given chronologically. He has taught at the University of Maine, in Providence at Brown, at Tsinghao University in China, and has been in the mathematics department for some over 30 years at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dr. Wiener is a man of many gifts. And uh, I think that it would be presumption to enumerate any of them. However, I want to make sure that he realizes that in this so-called lay audience, there are many people, I'm certain, who have heard about his cybernetics second or third hand, and have heard that it has something to do with electronics, with machines, with human beings, and that there is something there of drawing a parallel and almost an identity between man and the machine. Dr. Wiener, I hope, knows that there are some in this audience who consider it an insult to make that a sort of comparison, an insult to man. There are others, Dr. Wiener, I'm sure, to consider it an insult to the machine. <laughs> now, we are the lady and New Yorkers, most of us, and many of us recall, as I do, a cartoon in a magazine called New Yorker by A magazine called The New Yorker carried some years ago a cartoon by Charles Adams. This cartoon depicted a scene in a factory in which figures who looked like steel armor robots were busy with wrenches, screwdrivers, and other equipment in making others like them. There were two human figures in this cartoon, one apparently the owner of the factory or the chief executive and a visitor. And the owner was saying, yes, you know, I often wonder what all this is going to lead to. I tell this story because I hope that in his discourse tonight, our speaker may perhaps touch on some of the implications of this cartoon. Now, Dr. Wiener, as many members of the lady, I would ask you to give us guidance, divine or otherwise, in connection with at least some of the problems suggested by your title of men, machines, and the world about. Dr. Wiener.
just about right. I, in the first place, now feel the high point of the evening has been reached, and I shall, shall now take care of its gradual decline. In the first place, I'm going to start historically um, with the various things that got me interested in these problems, because they are relevant to the various things I shall have to say about the present state of things. There were two converging streams of ideas that brought me into this. One of them was the fact that in the last war, when it was manifestly coming, but before uh, Pearl Harbor at any rate, when we were not yet in the conflict, I tried to see if I could find some niche in the war effort at that time. In that uh, particular problem, I looked for something to do and found it in connection with automatic computing machines. Automatic computing machines of what is called an analogy sort, in which physical quantities are measured and not numbers counted, had already been made very successfully by Professor Vannevar Bush. But there were certain gaps in the theory. One of the gaps I can express mathematically by saying that these machines could do ordinary differential equations, but not partial differential equations. I shall express it physically by the fact that these machines could work in one dimension, namely time, but not in any very efficient way in two dimensions or three. Now, it occurred to me that A, the use of television had shown us a way to represent two or more dimensions on one, and B, that the previous devices which measured quantities should be replaced by a more precise sort of device that counted quantities. These were not only my own ideas. But at any rate, they were ideas that I had then, and I communicated them in a memorandum to Vannevar Bush, who was then in charge of scientific war planning for the entire country. The report that I gave was, in many ways, not in all, a substantial account of the present situation with automatic computing. So that I had already become familiar with the idea of the machine which does its arithmetic by making choices on the basis of previous choices, on the basis of previous choices, and so on, according to a schedule furnished to the machine by punch tape or by magnetized tape or other methods of the sort. Now, the other thing that led me to this work was the problem that I actually got put into in World War. It turned out that at that time, Professor Bush did not feel that this contribution was immediate enough to have been effective in the last war. So I looked around for another thing, and the great question that was being discussed at that time was anti-aircraft defense. It was the time of the Battle of England, 
and the existence of the United States as a combatant country, the survival of anybody to combat with Germany seemed to depend on anti-aircraft defense. Now, the anti-aircraft gun is a very interesting type of instrument. In the First World War, the anti-aircraft gun had been developed as a firing instrument, but one still used range tables directly by hand for firing the gun. That meant, essentially, that one had to do all the computation while the plane was flying overhead. And naturally, by the time you got in a position to do something about it, the plane had already done something about it and wasn't there. It became evident, and this long before the work that I did, uh, by the end of the First World War, and certainly in the period between the two, that the essence of the problem was to do all the... Okay, folks, I missed my window on talking about Fahrenheit 451 from Ray Bradbury little tied up in some things and this will happen from time to time so I uh, rolled into a uh, interview with or actually a speech by Norbert Wiener uh, let's look at Norbert and that era uh, and that particular era as you can tell the way people spoke was dramatically different I I have the ability to listen through a lot of this but I'm not certain my audience is, but you know, we'll give it a try. Um, primarily, they are people of words. Uh, the people that came on before uh, Norbert, definitely people of letters, people of words, and this was from that epoch. Um, it did not um, did not transfer past the sixties and seventies. To be frank about it, I, I think we. We've lost that particular um, aspect, although I'm sure some people may argue some university lectures still thrown on to that level. But Norbert is an interesting guy. Um, he essentially started the artificial intelligence revolution. Vandevar uh, Bush, who he mentioned already, and himself are the uh, pretty much the fathers of what we're experiencing right now. Um, you're going to have to listen closely, follow along, don't fall asleep uh, to get some of the elements of what Norbert Wiener is talking about, especially when it comes to the um, aspect of how this technology was going to impact life. As far as Fahrenheit 451, I think it's self-apparent what we just heard and how it implies um, the future that we are actually experiencing right now. Um, I would say this, it doesn't matter what team or tribe you may align yourself with, we are in an era where information is being restricted. And I will go into that in future conversations, but um, from my perspective, it is already well into that uh, level. And again, both bifurcations within tribes that exist in political uh, contrived political systems within the United States and Europe, both parties are egregious, egregiously involved in this. So let's go back into Norbert. Hopefully I won't miss the window after that. 
Um, and I got a couple of things to do. I'm in the middle of really evaluating some, I hope to write about it more, uh, really, really interesting AI model that I'm working with right now uh, from the open source community. It should be out hopefully in the next couple of days. Uh, I did not contribute to this model at all. It was given to me to test. So uh, it's sort of like a, a bit of a gift. I'll be back. Enjoy. Computation in advance and embody it in instruments which could pick up the observations of the play and use them in a proper way to get the necessary result to aim the uh, gun and aim it not at the plane, but sufficiently ahead of the plane so that the shell and the plane would arrive at the same time as induction. Well, that led to some very interesting mathematical theories. I had some ideas that turned out to be useful there. And I was put to work with a friend of mine, Julian Biglow. And very soon we ran into the following problem. The plane, uh, the, the, the anti-aircraft gun is not an isolated instrument. While it can be fired by radar, the primitive an obvious method of firing it is to have a gun pointer. And this gun pointer is a human element. This human element is joined with the mechanical elements of your predictor. The actual fire control is a system involving human beings and machines at the same time and must be reduced from an engineering point of view to a single structure, which either means a human interpretation of the machine or a mechanical interpretation of the operator or both. Now, we were forced there, both for the man firing the gun and for the aviator himself, to replace them in our studies by appropriate machines. The question came, how would we make a machine to simulate a gun point? And what troubles would one expect with the Now, there is a certain sort of control apparatus that is used for controlling speed in the governance of steam engines, that is used for controlling direction in the ship steering apparatus, which is called a negative feedback apparatus. In the ship steering apparatus, the quartermaster who turns the wheel does not move the rudder directly. The rudder is much too heavy in a modern ship for a dozen quartermasters to make work. What he does is move an element in the steering engine house, which is connected with the tiller of the ship by another element. The difference between the two positions is then conveyed to the steering engines on the two sides of the ship to regulate the emission of steam in the port or the starboard steering engine. The steering engine moves the rudder head, the tiller, in such a way as to cancel this uh, interval that has been placed between this moving element and the rudder head 
And in doing that, it recloses the valves and moves the rudder with the ship. In other words, the rudder is, rep is moved by something representing the difference between the commanding position and the actual position of the rudder. That is called negative feedback. This negative feedback, however, has its diseases. There's a definite pathology to it, which was already discussed, you would be rather astonished at the date, in 1868 by the great physicist Clark Maxwell in a paper of the Proceedings of the Royal Society on Government. If the feedback of the rudder or the governor is too intense, the apparatus will shoot past the neutral position a little more than it originally was passed on one side, will shoot still further past on the other, and will go into a hunting. Now, since we thought that the simplest way we could explain human control was by a feedback, we wondered whether this disease occurred. We went to our friend, Dr. Arturo Rosenblut, who was then Cannon's right-hand man at Harvard, and in the Harvard Medical School, a physiologist, with the following question. Is there any nervous disease known in which a person trying to accomplish a task starts swinging wider and wider and is unable to finish it? If, for example, I reach for my cigar, I suppose that the, ordinarily, the ordinary way I control my actions is in such a way as to reduce the amount by which the cigar has not been picked up. If the feedback is excessive, I would expect to go into a swing of that sort. Is that disease known? The answer was most definitely that disease is known. It has exactly the symptoms named. It occurs in uh, the pathology of the cerebellum, the little brain. It's known as purpose tremor or cerebellar tremor. Well, that gave us the lead. It looked as if a common theory could be given to account for the pattern of human behavior and control machine behavior in this case, and that it depended on negative feedback. That was one of the leads that we had. The other lead went back to the study of the automatic control machinery the automatic computing machinery. In the first place, automatic computing machinery is of no value except for one thing, its speed. It's more expensive than the ordinary desk machines, enormously more. You don't get anything out of it unless you use it at high speed. But to use a machine at high speed, it is necessary to see that every operation one carries out is carried out at a corresponding speed. If you mix in slow stages with fast stages in a machine, the slow stages always win out. They more nearly govern the behavior of the machine than the fast stage. Therefore, 
The commands given to a high-speed computing machine cannot be given while the machine is running by hand. They must be built in in advance to what is called a taping, like punch cards, like punch tape, like magnetic tape, and the like. And your machine must not only control the numbers in their combination, but the scheduling of operations. Your machine must be a logical machine. There again, we found a great similarity to what a human being was doing. The human nervous system, it is perfectly true, does not exhaust all of human control activity. There is without any doubt a control activity in man that goes through hormones, that goes to the blood, and so on. But as far as the nervous system works, the individual fibers come very near to showing an all or none action. That is, they fire or they do not fire. They don't fire halfway. If your individual fibers leading to a given fiber are connected with it by what is known as synapses fire, in the proper combination, perhaps at least as many as a certain number, and if certain so-called inhibitory fibers do not fire, the outgoing fiber fires, otherwise not. Now this is an operation of consecutive switching, extremely like the consecutive switching of the automatic computing machine. And this led us to another comparison between the nervous system and the computing machine. And led us furthermore to the idea that since the nervous system is not only a computing machine, but a control machine, that we may make very general control TikTok. working on the successive switching basis and much more like the uh, control machine part, the scheduling part of the computing machine than we might otherwise have thought possible. In particular, it seemed to us a very hopeful thing to make an automatic feedback control apparatus in which the feedback itself was carried out in large measure by successive switching operations, such as one finds either in the nervous system or in the computing machine. It was the fusion of these two ideas, each of which has a human or animal side and has a mechanical side, which led to cybernetics. That book I wrote in response to a request from a French publisher, and I chose the name because I felt that this particular combination of ideas couldn't be left too long, an unbaptized orphan, from the Greek word kubernetes, meaning steersman, as essentially the art of the steersman. Now, from here on, I can go ahead in very many ways. 
The first thing that I want to say is that feedback mechanisms are well known to occur not only in the voluntary action of the human body, but are necessary as necessity for its very life. A few years ago, Professor Henderson of Harvard wrote a book entitled The Fitness of the Environment. Anybody who has read that book must regard it as very much of a miracle that any organism can live, and particularly a human organism. Man cannot exist over any variety of temperature. For that matter, there is no active life, certainly above the boiling point and below the freezing point, and most planets probably don't have temperatures lying in that convenient range. When I say boiling point and freezing point, I mean of water, because water is a very uh, distinct and special sort of chemical substance. Now, even a fish can't exist at boiling point as alive. It can exist from something like our own temperature to something around freezing point, perhaps a little below, but not much below. And we can't do anything like that. We either have a chill or a fever if we get near it. And the temperature within which life is possible does not vary for any extended period for man, certainly much over 10 degrees, and practically varies much less than that. Again, we must live under constant conditions of saltiness of our blood, of urea concentration in our blood, and so on. How do we do this? The idea goes back to Claire Bernard and was developed very much by Canon. We are full of what are called homeostatic mechanisms, which are mechanisms like thermostats. A homeostat is a mechanism which keeps certain bodily conditions within a narrow range. One of those homeostats, probably at least in part located in the medulla, regulates temperature. Another one regulates breathing rates. Another one of them regulates urea concentration. It's the apparatus of the kidney. And there are not only a few, but many, many such controls. Now, such a control is like the house thermostat. The house thermostat, if you remember it, is a piece of apparatus which has a little thermometer in it made of two pieces of metal. It makes a contact at one temperature and breaks it at others, and it regulates the admission of oil to the furnace and the ignition of that oil. The interesting thing is it has its own pathology. Many of you people must know that. We have a house in which there is a thermostat which some brilliant architect placed in the only room in the house with a fireplace. The result is that if we want to cool the house in winter, we light the fire. Because 
we give false information to the thermostat. And the house is warm, and the thermostat turns out the furnace fire. Well, I may point out that a similar phenomenon in the uh, human thermostat might cause chills, might cause chills, or might cause fever. I'm going to depart a little bit from the main object of talk because this thing is medically very interesting. There are certain diseases, I'm not going to go into a characterization because I am not going to commit myself before so many doctors, in which the production of certain substances, say cells, the density of certain cells in the blood, as in leukemia, is increasing steadily. However, this steady increase is rather a regular thing in the disease. The actual rate of production and destruction of the cells is much, much higher than the rate of increase. Now that might be due conceivably to an independent disease of production or of destruction, but I don't think so. Because if these two phenomena give you big quantities that are nearly the same, a relatively small change in one will throw their difference out badly and produce a great irregularity in the difference. That's what would happen if we had no homeostasis. I don't think that's what happened. I think that the regularity of the process is an indication that we have a homeostat which is working, but working at the wrong level, as if the spring of the house thermostat were changing. That is an idea which is entirely tentative, but may have serious consequences for medicine. Now, there is another side to this that is also interesting. The homeostats in the body that I've spoken of are built in to the human body. Can we make a homeostat that is partly in the body and partly outside? The answer is definitely yes. A Dr. Bickford at the Mayo Clinic, and he's been followed in this by Dr. Versiano in the uh, uh, Cushing Veterans Hospital in Framingham, has made an apparatus which takes the brain waves of the electroencephalogram, amplifies them up, and uses the total number that has passed standard time or that has passed to inject anesthetic either into the veins or into a mask. The procedure is this. As the patient goes under, the brain waves become less active, the injection becomes less, and less injection is actually needed to keep the level of anesthesia. In this way, Anesthesia can be kept at a reasonably constant level for hours. Here you have a homeostat, which is a manufactured one. I don't believe that this is the last example in medicine. I think that the administration of drugs by homeostats, which read directly their physiological consequences, is a field which has a great future. However, I say this tension. 
Now, so far, I have been talking about man. Let's go to the machine on the other hand. Where will we find a case where a homeostatic machine is particularly desirable? The chemical industry is a very interesting case. A chemical factory is generally full of pipes carrying acids or alkalides or explosives or, at any rate, dangerous substances to work with. When certain thermometers reach certain temperatures and when certain colorimeters give certain readings, and certain pressures have been reached and so on, somebody turns certain valves. You'd better turn the right valve, particularly if it's something like an oil cracking plant or an atomic uh, chemical factory dealing with radioactive materials. But if he has to turn valves on the basis of the readings, then we can, as in the anti-aircraft gun, build in in advance the combination which should turn valves and distinguish them from those that don't. And the valves can be turned through amplifiers, through what is essentially computing apparatus, by the reading of the instruments themselves. The instruments are sensors. Now you may say, very good, but you have to have a man to provide for the emergency turn. By the way, it's extremely desirable not to have people in a factory that's likely to explode in the factory. Uh, people are expensive to replace, and besides, we have certain elementary humanitarian instincts. But the answer is, is a man likely to give better regulation in emergency than an instrument? The answer is no. For this reason, any emergency that you could reasonably think, reasonably think of, you can provide for in your computing and control operation. If at the time of the emergency, you can't think of what to do, and before the time, you cannot think of what to do, during the emergency, you're almost certain to make the wrong decision. If you cannot figure out a reasonable course of conduct in advance, you simply do not find that the Lord will give you the right thing to do when the emergency comes. Emergencies are provided for in times of peace, and I mean also by that emergencies like the falling of an atomic bomb about which I may or may not have say later. Now, then, for perfectly legitimate and even humanitarian reasons, the automatic control system is coming in in chemical industries and other especially dangerous industries. However, the same techniques that make that possible makes the automatic assembly line possible for automobiles. The automatic assembly line possible, perhaps even in the textile industry. And I can think of dozens of other industries. The interesting point here is this. That while the succession of orders that you give can be almost infinitely varied in a machine, the instruments which give successive orders are practically standard no matter what you're doing. There are two variants. One is the quasi-human hands to which they lead, and the other is the sequence of orders put in. 
Now, to change from one, say, Makel car to the other, to change from one style of body to the other on an automobile assembly line, you would not measure the order-giving machinery. You would measure the particular taping. You would alter the particular taping of that. There's a very interesting thing here. I suppose that a good many of you have seen the movie Cheaper by the Dozen. And in that movie, what I conceive to be the main leading idea of the Galdrace is completely missed, as it would be in most movies. The Galdrace had the idea that man was not working anywhere like full efficiency in his ordinary operation. They thought that families of a dozen were not had by people simply because of the stupidity of people in running their daily tasks, which could be avoided by a better ordering of those tasks. That was the motive behind the large family. That was the motive behind the systematic bringing up of those children. Now, however, when you have simplified a task by reducing it to a routine of consecutive processes, you have done the same sort of thing that you need to do to put the task on a machine and run the process by a completely automatic machine. The problem of industrial management and, and ordering which was handled by Taylor, by the Galbraiths, and so on, is almost the same problem as that of the taping of a control machine. So that instead of actually improving the conditions of the worker, it has telescoped the work worker out of the picture. That is a very important thing because it is a process that is taking place now. I want to say that we are, we are facing a new industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution represented the replacement of the energy of man and of animals and the power by the energy and power of the machine. The steam engine was its symbol. Well, that has gone so far that there's nothing that a man with pick and shovel can do but glean after a bulldozer. There is no rate at which pure pick and shovel work can be paid in this country, which will guarantee the man doing it a little. It is simply economically impossible to compete with the bulldozer for bulldozer work. The new industrial revolution, which is taking place now, consists primarily in replacing human judgment and discrimination at low levels by the discrimination of the machine. The machine appears now not as a source of power, but as a source of control or, and a source of communication. We communicate with the machine, and the machine communicates with us. Machines communicate with one another. Energy is, and power are not the proper terms to measure them. Well, if we, in the small way, make human tasks easier 
by replacing them with a machine execution of the task, and in a large way, eliminate the human element in these human tasks, we may find that we have essentially burnt incense before the machine god. There's a very real danger in this country in bowing down before the brazen calf. The idol is the gadget. And I know very great engineers who never think further than the construction of the gadget and never think of the question of the integration between the gadget and human beings in society. If we allow things to a reasonably slow development, then the introduction of the gadget as it comes in may hurt us enough to provoke a salutary response so that we realize that we cannot worship the gadget and sacrifice the human being to it. But a situation is easily possible in which we may have a disastrous result. Let us suppose that we go tomorrow to war with Russia. Now I think that Korea, if it has shown us anything, has shown us that modern war means nothing without influence. The problem of occupying Korea is serious enough. The problem of occupying China and Russia staggers imagination. But we have to we shall have to prepare to do that if we do go to war, at the same time as we have to keep up an industrial production to feed the army. Second, I mean, feed it with munitions as well as ordinary food and ordinary equipment, second to none in history. We shall have to do a maximum production job with a labor market simply scraped to the bottom. And that means the automatic machine. A war of that sort will mean the machines will mean putting a large part of our best engineering ability in developing the machines within two months, probably. Now, it happens that the people who do this sort of a job are there. They're the people who have been trained in electronic work in the last war, who worked with radar. We're further on with the automatic machine than we were with radar at the beginning at, our, at Pearl Harbor. Therefore, the situation is that probably two to three years will see the automatic factory well understood and beginning to be itself in production. And that five years or so would see it, something of which we possess the complete know-how and of which we possess a vast backlog of parts. Also in war, social reforms do not get made. At the end of such a war, We'll find ourselves then with a tremendous backlog of parts and know-how, which is extremely tempting to anybody who wants to make a quickie fortune and get out from under and leave the rest of the community to pick up the pieces. That may very well happen. If that does happen, heaven help us, because we'll have an unemployment paired with which the Great Depression was 
a nice little jump. Well, you see the picture drawing together. Now, I suppose one of the things that you people would like will be consolation. Gentlemen, there is no Santa Claus. If we want to live with a machine, we must understand the machine. We must not worship the machine. We must make a great many changes in the way we live with other people. Other people. We must revalue leisure. We must turn the great administrators of business, of industry, of politics into a state of mind where they will consider that the leisure of people is their business and is not none of their business. We shall have to do this unhampered by slogans which fit a previous state of society and don't fit the present. We shall have to do this unhampered by the creeping paralysis of secrecy, which is engulfing our government. Because secrecy simply means that we are unable to face situations as they are. The people who have to control situations are in no position to handle them. We shall have to realize that while we may make the machines our gods and sacrifice men to machines, we do not have to do so. And if we do so, we deserve the punishment of idolaters. It's going to be a difficult time. If we can live through it and keep our head, and if we do not get annihilated by war itself and our other problems, there is a great chance of turning the machine to human advantage. But the machine itself has no particular favor for humanity. It is possible to make two kinds of machines. I will not go into the detail. The machines whose taping is determined once for all, and the machines whose taping is continually being modified by their experience. The second sort of machines can, in some sense, learn. Now, gentlemen, the moral problem of the machine does, differs in no way from the old moral problem of magic. The fact that the machines follow laws of nature and magic was supposed to be outside of nature is not even an interesting moral issue. Sorcery was condemned in the Middle Ages. The modern, a certain modern type of gadgeteer would have been hanged or burnt as a sorcerer under the ethics of the Middle Ages. And the interesting thing is that the Middle Ages, to a certain extent, I don't mean in the in favor for the flame, but in its disfavor for the gadgeteer, has a point of being right. Namely, sorcery was not the supernatural, the use of the supernatural, it was the use of human power for other purposes than the greater glory of God. Now, I am not a theist when I say the greater glory of God. I mean it for some end 
to which we can give a justified moral value. I say that the medieval attitude is the attitude of the fairy tale in many things. But the attitude of the fairy tale is very wise in many things that are relevant to modern life. If you have the machine which grants you your wish, then you must pay attention to the old fairy tale of the three wishes, which tells you that if you do make a wish which is likely to be granted, you'd better be very sure that it is what you want and not what you think you want. If you know the story of the monkey's paw, Jacob's story, the, uh, the talisman grants a couple three wishes. The first is for 200 pounds. Immediately the man appears from the factory to say that their boy has been crushed in the machinery. And although the factory recognizes no responsibility, they will give a solace of 200 pounds. Then the next wish is that they wish the boy back again and his ghost appears. Then they wish the ghost away. And that finishes that story. That is common in folklore and is quite as significant with regard to the machine as it is with regard to any other magic. The other thing is that the machine that can learn is essentially a genie. And you all know the story of the fisherman and the bottle. He opens the bottle and the gin appears. Adventure. You 
may be in control, you may be controlled, you may stay down till you do as you're told, you may work hard, you may never work at all, you may be accused but you don't know what for, you may be innocent of parties to blame, you may just be brave in this power that age, but there's one thing we all must find, some peace in our time. Can you predict what will come in 100 years, or in 10, or in the next minute? Some people think they can. Nuclear scientists, mathematicians, astronomers, biologists. They'll predict the shape of the future because they make the future. Because they see beyond the known dimensions of time and space into the unknown dimension X. We go ahead now in time to 1965. We're on a vast concrete runway set in the desert of the southwest. A giant metal ship stands before us, prow pointed to the stars. And in five minutes, the signal will flash, and it will tear up through the atmosphere to the outer limit. Five minutes, Steve. All right. Wire up, Charlie. I want to go over the procedure again, Steve. Don't worry, I got it straight. You just make sure. Okay. I take her up on jets to 50,000, then I cut in the rocket. No lower, or your tail blast will burn out three counties. I climb four minutes on rockets, then start maneuver tests. Remember that. No more than four minutes. Right. This ship isn't like those Strata rockets you've been testing. She's the first one built for outer space. She works. She can go clear to the moon. But I know that I'd have brought my toothbrush. No, not this trip. Now get this, Steve. You've got power there to clear the Earth's gravitational field. But remember, after you cut into rockets, you've only got ten minutes fuel. If you go beyond the outer limit and don't save fuel for the return, I know I won't get down again. That's right, Steve. You'll drift off into space. Get that now. Ten minutes fuel. Gotcha. As far as I'm concerned, this project is a lot more important than that cosmic ray bomb they're testing out in the Pacific tonight. 
Security Commission brass doesn't think so. I don't see any undersecretaries under anything. Don't worry. The long run, our ship will make the CR bomb back page stuff. But in the meantime, it's just as dangerous. Remember, half the principles in this ship are pure theory, Steve. Slide rule stuff. If anything goes wrong, we may have to scrape you off the landscape with a soup spoon. You have a charming sense of humor. And here's what I'm getting at. We're risking your neck in this test. If anything blows, we don't want to have the next man pull the same boner. I know, Hank. So keep your mic open and keep talking. If anything goes wrong, we want to know exactly why. And we won't be able to ask you. Let us know before you pull every switch. Before you do anything. You got that? Yeah. Even if you only have to blow your nose. All right, get those fuel lines away. Okay, bro. Well, I guess that's about all, Steve. Yeah, that reminds me. Look, if Mary calls, I'm just up on a milk run. I didn't tell her today was it. How is she? She's okay, but she's due about now, and I don't want her to be nervous. Hey, I didn't know the baby was that close. Yeah. Steve, I, I really ought to be sending a single man on this job. What, cut me out of a soft paycheck? Forget it, Hank. You know, you can't get anybody else who can take 15 G's acceleration when those rockets cut in. Yeah, I know. It's time, Steve. Yeah. Well, see you later. Don't worry, Hank. I'll sweat for both of us. Button her up, Charlie. So long, Hank. So long. We'll give you the light from control. Okay, Steve. Got you on the speaker. I'm ready to go. Mr. Hanson. Ready on radar, Sergeant? Yeah. Mr. Hanson, you better see this. What is it, Elsa? Message sent for Steve. Mrs. Weston just left for the hospital. What? Hello, Steve. Yeah. Stand by a minute. Shall we hold the takeoff, Mr. Hanson? What? Oh, yes. Uh, no, wait, wait just a minute. It's uh, it's too late now. You going to tell him? Maybe he's got enough to worry about. Hey, what's all the good stuff, Hank? Something in your mind? No, no, it's, uh, it's nothing, Steve. I just wanted to say good luck. Clear for takeoff, Charlie? Right. Okay, give him the light. All right, Steve, I'm reading you clear. Still climbing. Altitude, 297 miles. All right, you're at the outer limit. Level off for maneuver test. You've got exactly six minutes fuel left. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its... Okay. Starting a three-degree left bank. It's a little sluggish. 
That's all right now. There's a low vibration someplace. Maybe the cockpit hatch. I'm straightening out. Five minutes fuel left. I'm starting at three degree right. Hey! What's the matter? What's wrong? There's something up here. Something shining. What are you talking about? There's something above me, Hank. I'm going to chase it. Steve! Steve, you're at the outer limit now. I can see it plain now. Steve, don't go any higher. You've only got four minutes left. You've only got... Static. I can't hear you, Hank. It's dead ahead now. I'm going to make a pass at it. Get a good look. Hey, it's swerving to meet me. It's dead ahead now. It's dead ahead. Hello. Hello. Hello, Steve. Steve, come in. Nine minutes. Still gone. Still no sign on radar. Hello. Hello, Steve. Steve, what's happened? Charlie, get out the crash squad. Tell the Army squadron to alert their search planes. Right. Nine and a half minutes gone. Hello. Hello, Steve. What's happened? Who the devil is it? Hello. Come in, Steve. We need a search squad. Come in. No, Mr. Hanson's busy. Hello. Hello, Steve. Hello, Steve. Ten minutes, Mr. Hanson. At the end of the fuel. Ten hours, Mr. Hanson. Nothing more on radar, Sergeant? Screen's blank. Colonel Corelli called in. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliate... Adventure. Jam with machinery. Dials, blinkers. I couldn't recognize anything. And you were surrounded by these men from Mars. I didn't say anything about men from Mars. I didn't even say they were men. I couldn't see them clearly. They were just there. Where did they come from then? Another galaxy. Millions of miles outside of our solar system. That's all I know. You figure out where they came from. And they came all that distance to find the Earth? Yes. Did they tell you that? Yes. You mean they spoke English to you? No, no, they didn't. It's funny. I hadn't thought. They didn't really speak to me at all. They. Planted the thoughts in my mind. You mean thought transference, telepathy? Yes, that's right. Well, Steve, what brought them here? We did, Hank. We rang their bell. We brought them in. Well, how? With our atomic explosions. Hank, that's why you've got to stop that bomb test tonight. Uh, I'll give up. Look, you've got to believe me, Hank. Oh, how can I make you understand? Maybe I can help, Mr. Witt. Would you submit to narcopsychometry? What's that? Under proper drugs, I can put you back in this, uh, ship. By suggestion. Then we can get a playback record of your memory pattern on the audio circuit. How long will that take? Half an hour. We'll have to go over to the lab. Will you believe me if it checks? It will give us an accurate memory picture of what your mind reports. All right, let's go. Hank, you got to believe me. We haven't got much time. You should be getting drowsy now. Count backwards from ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Six. 
He's under. Now we attach the head plate electrode. Cortical pickup. Look out for that wire, Mr. Henson. Three old setting. 31.3. Now throw that switch, Mr. Henson. I have to start him off by suggestion. All right, Steve. You're in your ship now. You're in the rocket. Rocket. You're in the rocket. You're in the rocket. And you've just sighted something strange. Now I'm starting at three degree right. What's that? Hey, there's something up here. Something shiny. His memory pattern. They're picking it up electronically. There's something above me, Hank. I'm going to chase it. It's packed through the audio circuit. I'm getting static. I can't hear you, Hank. This is where we lost contact with him. I'm going to make a pass at it. And... Hey, it's swerving to meet me. It's not ahead now. It's not ahead. Now, this is where he blacked out. There's no telling how long, minutes or hours. What's that noise? I don't know, quiet. Where? How did I get in here? What? Who are you? Is he seeing things? Intergalactic patrol. What's that? What are they saying, Steve? What are they saying?
April 10th, 1965, the end. Now, look, Steve, you better calm down. Don't you want to see Mary and the baby? You've got a new son, remember? Yeah, that's just it. I, I want to see my son. I want him to live. If that bomb goes off, I think we've got to stop them. Mr. Hanson, I think we'd better get over to the base hospital. Hank, you've got to believe yeah, me. Yeah, sure, sure, Steve. Maybe there is something to it. Look, it's out of your hands. I'll put it in a report and shove it into Washington in the morning. In the morning? There isn't going to be any morning, Hank. Don't you understand? You've got to call Washington now. Get the head of the security commission and postpone that test. Now, you know I can't do that, Steve. My neck would be out a mile. Besides, this is 1965, not 45. Twenty countries have atomic bombs now. What's the use of stopping just this one? The rest will keep right on popping them up. Well, we'll have to call an international conference. Can't you understand, Hank? The first one that goes off finishes us at the end. They've given us the quarantine warning. Steve, I think you'd better go with us to the base hospital. <laughs> Look, Steve. We can call up for a detail if we have to. All right, all right. I'll go with it. You don't need a straight jacket. That's the way, Steve. You'll probably feel better by morning. Let's go. Well, Steve, tomorrow I'll drive you over to the hospital to see Mary and the kid. Sure. Look at the ship under the floodlights. Pretty, huh? You'll be flying her again soon, don't you worry. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh, what you doing out in the line? The, uh, refuel? Yeah, we got Clausewitz coming in tomorrow for Denver for another test. I figure we give you a day off. That's good. That's fine. Steve! Steve, come back! Come on, Donald. Steve! Steve, wait! He's heading for the rockets! Look, there he goes up! That crazy fool! He can't get out of now. That covers armor glass. He's waving. Yeah, towards control. It's the radio. He needs the radio. Come on. I should have gotten help. Oh, the radio's still hooked up here. Hello. Hello, Steve. Listen to me, Hank. You gotta call Washington now. Come out of that rocket, Steve. I'll call my men. Don't Hank. try anything, Hank. They refueled the rocket for tomorrow. Take it easy, Steve. Listen, you know what'll happen when I fire the rocket tubes down here? Please don't. It'll burn out every building for five miles. All of us in one big blast. Steve, what do you want? You've got to stop that bomb. you got to call Washington right now. They won't believe me. You make that call or I cut in the rocket. Now, I mean it, Hank. I hook my screen to yours in parallel. I want to see exactly what you're doing. All right, all right. Just don't fire those rockets. That's going, Hank. got 12 minutes to make that call and stop that bomb. All right, I'm making the parallel hookup right now. Donaldson, you think he'll really blast? I don't know. Up to now, I'd almost say it was normal. But now he's liable to do anything, Hanson. Steve... Steve, there, are you getting it on your screen? Yeah. Now put that call through. All right. Operator. Visit screen to Washington. The visit screen circuits are busy, sir. They'll try again in half an hour. This is security commission priority. Break in, get me a line. Yes, sir. Just a moment, please. Ten minutes, Hank. Listen, Steve, I'm trying. We're ready to take your call, sir. Uh, Washington, security commission three. This is urgent. I want undersecretary Herbert Ames. Washington three. One moment, please. Hurry, will you? One moment, please. What time is it, Donaldson? 11.51. Do you think he'll fire those rockets? He might. Washington? This is screen three. Mr. Herbert Ames, please. That is code of exchange. I cannot accept your call without clearance. Get it through, Hank! Listen, Washington, put it through. This is Mr. Hansen at San Marco Air Base. This is a priority call. I'm coded. One moment, please. I will check your code number. Get that through, Hank, and that bomb goes off at 12. Will you be reasonable, Steve? Your call has cleared, San Marco. Washington, this is screen three. Herbert Ames, please. Security Commission Ames. Listen, Ames. Hello, Ames. Ames, you've got to get me to the chief. Are you kidding? Is it the test control room? Yes, I know, but get him for me. What's up? You look lousy. Or is it a bad circuit? There's no time. I've got to get him before the test. It's about the CR bomb. I can't take that responsibility. Get that through, Hank. 
I'm glad. What's going on there? Ames, my project has a high enough rating. This is a priority A call. What? Okay, it's your neck. I'll try to get him for you. He's in the control room, so you'll have to switch off your screen and speaker and go on earphone. Too much going on in there. Security rolling. You hear that, Steve? I've got, I've got to cut the incoming screen. All right. Don't try anything. Eight minutes, Hank. Hello. Hello. What? You got him, Hank? Yes. This this is Hanson in San Marco. No, sir. Priority A request to cancel the bomb test. No, no, I'm serious. This is deadly serious. We sent the X2 JTR up today to the outer limit. We uncovered evidence. Yes, on the automatic instruments. What's that? No possible chain reaction. No, I, I can't tell you the whole story. There isn't time here. Yes, yes, I, I'll bring the readings into Washington in the morning. You've got to postpone the test till you see them. Look, I've worked on contracts for the commission for ten years. Yes, yes, I have complete confidence in my information. You can record that. All right, I, I'll call you back immediately. Bye. Hank? Hank? He's agreed to cancel, Steve. The bomb won't go off. All right, boy. You can come down out of that ship. He's opening up. Here he comes. All right, Steve. Come on down. Sure, Hank. Just a second. Hank, I was scared. I was plain scared. He's in. It's all over. The bomb won't go off. Thank God. Look, uh, I want to see Mary and the baby. Can you get me transportation now? Oh, wait a minute. It's almost 12. They won't let you in the hospital now. I want to see the baby. Sure you do, but you've been under a strain. I've got a shot for you here, Steve. Give you a good night's sleep. All right. Roll up your sleeve. Yeah, yeah. Well, that'll make you sleep. Sergeant will find you a bed. Yes, sir. Come on, Mr. Weston. Okay. Good night, Hank. I'm kind of beat. It's been a tough night. It sure has. I thought for a minute he was going to blast those rockets and send us all to kingdom come. Yeah. Quite a stunt getting the ray bomb test called off. It isn't called off. But the chief said... Ames couldn't get the chief. I was talking to a dead circuit. Bomb goes off in a couple of minutes. Oh. Poor Steve. Was one of the best. He was the best. One in ten million. Some story of this poor guy. For a while, he almost had me believing that quarantine. That's a very common delusion. End of the world. Yeah. I suppose so. Ah, it's a nice night. Never saw the stars so bright. We better be getting in. That wind is cold. Huh? Well, the bomb goes off in 30 seconds. Poor Steve. You know, Hanson, there's just one thing. Yeah? It's outside my field, but I'm curious. How did he keep that ship in the air for 10 hours with only... Ten minutes fuel.
You have just heard another adventure in time, space, and the unknown world of the future. The world of... Dimension. Next week, a star of the future appearing on the program of the future, Dimension X. Next week, Miss Nancy Olsen, the talented young actress whose performance in Sunset Boulevard marks her as one of Hollywood's most promising young actresses, becomes the first of a group of rising young artists of stage and screen who have been invited to make an appearance in this series. So listen then for Hello Tomorrow, starring Nancy Olsen on Dimension X. Tonight, Dimension X has transcribed The Outer Limits, written by Graham Dorr and adapted for radio by Ernest Kenoy. Featured in the cast were Wendell Holmes as Hanson, Joseph Julian as Steve, and Joe DeSantis as Donaldson. Your host was Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman, engineer Bill Chambers. Dimension X is produced by Van Woodward and directed by Edward King.
summon standard to each I'm on the back ten stargazing after the siege Commanding all the management to grab a few seats And then we'll round up the beasts and send a messenger east Y'all better sign a release when I'm bumping these beats Hands up if I got motherfuckers drumming the streets Yo, we got a few dubs, we got a couple defeats And if you're coming for the king, you better have some of each Motherfuckers, motherfuckers screaming out loud looking for mercy Before they find themselves working a corner down in Jersey What could be worse? Misrepresenting the first come first serve Mentality stuck in the verbs I'll be numbing up first before discovering what works And we'll see what other kinds of treasures under the dirt We rape and blunder the earth Say and wonder about the worth and plate Ring around the rosy while the thunder is served Ten spaces.